All right, this is week three of the Advent series uh, called Way to the World. And uh, Advent means coming, and so the church has historically looked at the coming of Christ from two perspectives. One is the, the coming of the Savior Messiah, right? That the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then this thing that we do now waiting for a future hope, and that is he's going to come again for his, his church, amen? And so we always remind ourselves in a season like this of why he came and that he's coming again to encourage us and to move us towards love and good deeds. But there is a reason why we W-A-I-T, wait, and that's because it's other weight. We played this on, on purpose to, to make a point. There's a weight, a heaviness to what we experience in our world. And so we wanted to talk about that and how does this coming, the Messiah, the Advent, how does he address these things that we deal with in our life, the heaviness of our life, the W-E-I-G-H-T, weight. Um, there are experts, I don't have to tell you, uh, psychologists who look at this season and, and talk to people and take surveys and somehow they've concluded that this time of year is the time of year where uh, there is a, a rise in people's depression discouragement, loneliness, whatever bad emotion I suppose a human can feel gets accentuated in a holiday season. In fact, I even read somewhere they've got a, a, a disorder named after the holiday season called SAD, Seasonal Effective Disorder. Now, I'm not, I'm not perpetrating that idea. I'm just saying people want to label everything for, for uh, what's wrong with us. And, and hopefully after today, after we get done today, you'll know what the real reason is. If there's anybody who's lamenting a season like uh, Advent, it's probably due to the fact of misplaced expectations, right? And so we want to talk about that this morning. And I don't want to be Debbie Downer, but truly, um, there's a part of this that we have to face called reality. Um, in a world that markets this season as the happiest time of the year, to some people, it does just the opposite. And they would look at the season and say, happy about what? Uh, I don't have things to be happy about. In fact, my life is very, very tough, and uh, one day on the calendar is not going to fix that for me, and so uh, please just get me to the next, the next season, right? Or there's a possibility that people rise the expectations so high that the only thing left is let down. It can never deliver on that promise. It can never be all that it's intended to be, and so there's a major disappointment with it. And so the reality of that experience, and I think it's true, we wanted to talk about the heaviness or the weight of the world in lieu of waiting for a savior, okay? And we started with, I think, the foundational piece of understanding weight, and that was the weight of sin. First Timothy, Paul tells this young pastor the reason why Jesus came into the world. He came into the world to save sinners. It's a very short sentence, but very profound in telling us the intention of a Messiah king coming for people. There is one predominant need we have, and that is we have a sin that separates us from God forever. So Jesus came, God came, took on flesh to make a way for us. And so we looked at sin, as ugly as that was, what our sin is and how we behave in our sin and how it separates us from God. Because if we don't get that, if we don't get sin, we don't get celebration. There isn't anything happy about the season if he really didn't deal with our sin, right? So we looked at that. Last week, I listened to Paul's sermon online, and he did a great job talking about another weight that... Is common to man, the, the weight of fear, worry, doubt, all the things that in lieu of what we see and experiences that we have, we kind of wonder, is this going to turn out all right? Is God really in charge of these things? And so uh, that was a good, a, a good moment for us as well. But we're going to add one more uh, to the weight of the world, and that is the weight of joy. <laughs> sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? So, sounds like, uh, like it's wrong, the weight of joy. How is joy ever a weight? Uh, 
I'm thinking that possibly if we get joy, if that's, I mean, I'd love to have joy. If I had joy, it would feel just like the opposite. It wouldn't feel like weight. It would feel like weightlessness, hope, and, and satisfaction, right? If I get, if I get that, that joy. But here's the thing. The reality of this uh, joy is that some of us, even if I say to you today that joy is a really important thing and you should pursue it, we would look at it and go, wait a minute, my joy? Like if I think about my joy, doesn't the Bible say things about um, sacrifice and service and carry your cross all sounds very unproductive when it comes to joy. Like I should, I should take a small position, not pursue my own joy, give up my life and serve other people, take up my cross and follow, and it sounds very counterproductive in the way of my joy. And I personally believe that there's a lot of people who have or will sometime in their future misunderstood biblical joy. And so that's what we want to talk about today, the way to joy. In a season that says you can find happiness, you can find contentment, and you should be joyous, um, then there's a reality that we have to examine. And so that's what we're going to do today. And I'm going to do it with a, a simple description of the rules of joy, okay? So if you like to take notes, here's rule number one. Everyone everywhere is in a constant pursuit of joy and happiness. No exceptions. Everyone everywhere is in a constant pursuit of joy and happiness. Uh, an old philosopher, 1600s, Blaise Pascal, said this. You've heard me read this to you before, but it's poignant. He makes this point about the perpetual suit of, pursuit of every man for joy. He says, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. Kind of gory for a Christmas subject, but it's reality. And the bottom line, to paraphrase what he just said, is you always do what you want to do, and what you want to do is be happy. Everyone does. No one has to teach you that. You come out of the womb wanting to make yourself happy. And that's the truth. And whatever you do is your, is your destination for happiness. So let me use a couple of illustrations. Why, why do you work out? You know, Neil was in the last service, and him and I are great comparisons. He goes to the gym every morning. I don't, okay? And we both do it for the same reasons. <laughs> to be happy right? So he gets up and says, if I work out, I'll feel better. I'll stay awake after lunch. I don't work out because I'd rather not feel the pain, and it makes me happy, <laughs> right? So, some people say, listen, if I look better, if I actually lose a few pounds and I look better, people will think this of me, and so even insecurity would be a driving force behind so, why some people would work out, but ultimately, the destination is the same for everyone. When I get people's approval, I'll be happy. And you can fill in the blanks. Why do you go to work every day? You go to work. Some go to work because work provides money. Money provides things. Things make me happy. Or you're just one of those type A achievers. And so for you, it's about, it's about the deal. It's about the art of the deal. It's about finishing. It's about, you know, another pelt on your, on your lodge pole. I've accomplished something. I've done it. And so it's simply about fulfillment, the thrill, the adrenaline of the, of the deal. And you go to work because that ultimately makes you happy. You put yourself and your money at risk because if it goes, if it flies, if you make more, it makes you happy. And everyone does the same thing. I had uh, dinner on uh, Wednesday night with, with a friend, a, a couple. And uh, we were sitting around just getting caught up. And uh, they were talking, I think, sort of like in the context of their bucket list, okay? And on their list was to jump out of an airplane. 
which, which they did. And the reason why he told me he jumped out of the airplane was so that he could overcome his fear of jumping out of, out of an airplane. And I figured I could help him. Here's the best way to avoid the fear of jumping out of airplanes. Don't. You don't have to, and you get what you want, okay? But ultimately, why did someone jump out of an airplane? If, even if it was, hey, I don't want fear to dictate terms to me, and if I overcome the fear, it will make me happy. And that's the truth of anybody's pursuit. You get the point? At the end of everything we do is the answer to what we think will make us happy, without exception. No matter what you do, if you're helping yourself or hurting yourself, the conclusion is if I do these things or don't do these things, I will be more happy, okay? So let me restate the first rule in another way. The quest for joy and happiness isn't bad. It's inevitable, okay? It just happens for everybody. You don't have to be trained. Here's rule number two. We will look everywhere for it. We will try anything to get it. Good things, bad things, helpful things, and destructive things, right? Isn't that true? Maybe I could get the sound guys to give us a mic and we'll just pass it around. You tell everybody how many things you've tried in your life to search for happiness. And we'll try anything to, to, to get it. Let me take you to a passage of scripture to make a point. John, 1 John chapter 2, very familiar passage. When John gives an imperative to the church, a command to not love the world, he describes what it looks like to love the world in three different categories. And I want to use that to kind of make a point, an outline from John. 1 John chapter 2. Now, I, this is uh, John the apostle. He wrote the Gospel of John, he wrote Revelation, he's the cousin of Jesus, he is the one Jesus loved. This guy's pretty important and pretty close to the heart of God, and he writes this particular instruction, and I think all instruction comes from a tendency to do it. So it's not like Paul uh, or John is looking at the church going, hey man, they might someday discover love for things. Let's tell them before they get there. No, that's not why he wrote this. This instruction comes because of our tendencies to do. Get it? So in this instruction, here's what he says, verse 15. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Verse 16 really plays it out, those three particulars. The first one he says is desires of the flesh. There's another way to say it. This one doesn't sound so good. It's cravings of an evil heart. And the reason why I say it that way is that's exactly John's intention here is to describe the heart, the, the evil, wicked, bent heart away from the things of God and what it wants. And it wants to feed itself and its own cravings. That's the part. And John warns the church, don't fall in love with that desire of the flesh. And the heart gets evil and it perverts and distorts normal desires. For instance, um, the difference between provision that God promises to his people. If you, if you need housing and clothing and what to wear, he provides. God provides all those things. But guess what happens to the evil bent heart? It goes from provision to hoarding because it ultimately thinks if I have much, I don't have to trust in him. And so it just collects, it collects. It fills up its barns. It has a great 401k. It has a great retirement. And it does not do anything for the kingdom. It simply hoards. And that's one of the ways the evil cravings of the heart twist something good. The other thing it does with normal desires, it does something like take something like love. God invented love. God is love. God gave love and intimacy to the 
to his people and said, here, marriage, marriage. In the context of that, let it go. And we turn it into sex and pornography and things that twist a normal desire into something wicked. We can take something as, as simple as food and turn it into gluttony. And you can take anything you want and just keep going. Evil inclinations do that with what God provides, right? So that's the whole cravings of the evil heart or the desires of the flesh. There's another thing that John says here. He says desires of the eyes. I don't normally think about it much, but our eyes are really a precious gift from God. Apart from just being able to function, they, they allow us to see that God did everything good and great. And God is doing things that are amazing. We can see all that he's made, but here's what sin does. Sin blurs our eyes and the use of our eyes, and suddenly what would be seen as something to praise God for turns into a tool used to covet what you don't have, right? Or to... to to fall in love with or worship something false like an idol or, or lust or envy or you, you go on. We use our eyes to, to feed the flesh. The last thing that John says here is the, the idea of pride of possessions or maybe you have another writer that says pride of life. Um, pride is the sin that turned creation on its head. Instead of thanking God for what he's done, this particular sin um, doesn't see humility Instead of humility, it sees, it, it sees um, everything about itself. As opposed to knowing our place and our role to glorify God with everything we do in our life, we turn it all for us. Sin, then for, therefore, becomes centered on us, and we end up being the goal and the focus of our life. Ever been there? Ever met anybody there? It's about me. It's for me. It ends on me, and that's exactly what John says here. Those things, those evil cravings, the flesh, the eyes, the life, the pride of life, those are things we aren't to love, but if we give ourselves to trying to find joy, guess where we go? Right here. We look for joy everywhere. Relationships, this one's not good enough. Get rid of that one. Try another one. More things, more money, more power, more success, more achievement, more pleasure. Some people even choose, like Pascal said, even conflict. Some people love war enough to say that's worth my pursuit. I have had a couple of moments in my life where I use, and I don't have a lot of champion stories. I have a lot of failure stories. I hope you don't get tired of those, but um, a couple of little moments in my life where I remember laying awake at night dreaming about something that would make me happy. One was a job that earned money. I was hanging around with a bunch of friends and they all made huge sums of money. And so in my warped young man conclusion, I felt like the way for me to grow up and succeed and be like what I'm supposed to be, I need to have a job that produced. And so I had a job managing a hotel and I got fired. It wasn't my fault, by the way. That's another lesson <laughs> for another time. Um, but for a year, I thought I'd cut the brass ring. Income, employment, status, all that kind of stuff. The second time I, I remember laying awake at night was when I was dreaming about ministry. I thought, oh, crap, if I could just get, if I could just get that significant role, if I could do something of worth and of value that is so great that not, now maybe, maybe I would have significance. You see the, the distorted part. Now something good has turned into something bad because it was feeding a weakness in me, and I learned over time all of my ideals were blown up, pride was shot. God won't have competition. And so I was looking for something. I look anywhere. I look at something like money. Well, that didn't do it. And looked at even ministry, and that didn't do it. But I don't think anybody in here is any different. We look anywhere. We look everywhere to find joy, to find happiness. 
Here's the third absolute joy, uh, absolute rule of joy. God is the ultimate desire and fulfillment of everyone. The, the ultimate desire and fulfillment of every joy. In other words, the reason we all have an insatiable desire for joy is that God made us for it and he made us to find it only in him. Does that make sense? He gave us the hunger for joy. He gave it to us and said it can be fulfilled only one place, in him. You've heard it maybe said this way before that there's a God-shaped vacuum in every soul, right? That's one of the philosopher's ways of saying that this desire, this hunger, this want is by God, for God. And we try to fill different things in there to make it work. Now, let me take you another passage to give you an outline of the conclusion of that kind of thinking. Psalm 16. Psalm 16. This is King David, and he, out, he outlines this thought way better than I can. So let's just pull it apart a little bit. This is verse 1 and 2. David says, Preserve me, O God. For in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. You should underline that phrase. I have no good apart from you. That's what David says. There is no other good but God. Now, David should know, right? Like in our perspective, king, position, power, wealth, pleasure, Influence, I mean, I would think that if you were trying to make a list of common man desires, David could probably pursue them at a higher level degree than anyone in here could. And so David gets done looking at his life and looking at the conclusion and says, I only have one good thing. You're, the, you're it. You're the only thing worth it to, to me. Now, let, let me confess something, I think. If we're honest with ourselves, there is a stubborn blindness to our hearts, to every person's heart that questions if that's true. Is he really? Is he really the only thing good? Because you're going you're gonna to see this is true. The only explanation for your sin is that there's moments and times you don't believe that he's the only thing good. Somewhere you're doing your thing and you're following Christ and you're loving the Lord and suddenly something shows itself. It's some kind of longing, some kind of want, some kind of need in your mind. And you have to sin to go get it. At that moment, you're saying, listen, maybe he's not really the only thing good. Maybe there's something missing. Maybe if I add this plus Jesus, I'll be ultimately happy. Isn't that the explanation of sin? Isn't that why we do what we do? Why else would you buy more than you need? Why else would you be bitter and not forgive other people? Why, why else would you resent and be afraid or hold grudges or worry? Why else would you cope unless you thought those things plus Jesus equaled joy? You wouldn't say he's the only good thing because that's a confession out loud. Everything else is condemned. But it explains our sin. In the midst of our life, our trust that this statement is true kind of wanes, doesn't it? It just kind of fades but David knows this is true. Nothing else compares. Nothing else comes close. There's only one good thing he says. Now look at his second point, verse four. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. False gods multiply sorrows. That's what the text says. Now if the first phrase, if your stubborn blindness uh, makes that one hard to believe, then I think our experience and failure in our own life make this one hard to deny right? 
let me, let me ask you, have you ever been disappointed? Ever? A little bit? Ever had your heart broken? Well, then you're, you believe exactly what David says here. Those who run after other gods, the sorrows will multiply. In, in other words, your heart will be broken if you choose anything but the greatest good who is God. Chris Wright said it this way, false gods never fail to fail, and when they do, we get hurt. There is no other option for false gods. C.S. Lewis said, idols always break the heart of their worshipers. Crushes us. I invested in you. I invested in it. I gave my heart away. I cared deeply in something that could not, would not ever deliver, and it crushed me as it's supposed to. Just like David says here in verse 4, sorrows of those who chase after other gods will be multiplied. I don't have to teach you about disappointment, do I? You invest in a, you're convinced this investment, this retirement account, man, this is it, this is it, and it fades away. Have your husband or your wife disappoint you, your kids disappoint you. I've had, I have conversations with people who have made their way to the church over the last several years and some coming from other churches who've let them down and I would say, you've had your church disappoint you before, haven't you? Sinners with sinners, what is going to happen? What do you think is going to happen? Not intentionally, but sin. We have a Bible, by the way, of instruction. We know how to handle it, but most people coming, I, I didn't see that coming. I didn't think anybody would hurt me again. But you've been disappointed by the church. You've been disappointed by your endeavors and people and dreams. And so there's a reason why I don't have to argue for disappointment because we all have one. And there's a reason why we get so disappointed in everything, and that is because you're not designed to be satisfied in things or people. That's not how you're made. You're not fashioned as a, as a person to be satisfied in things. You were made to be fully satisfied in him by the creator God when you give your heart to him. Isn't that what David says? Look at the end of, of 16. He talks about the ultimate joy. Verses 8 through 11. David says, I have set the Lord always before me because he is my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad. Now listen to these phrases he says about his relationship with the Lord. My heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Look at those phrases. David says, in your presence, here's what I found. I have found gladness for the heart. Rest for the flesh, he says, which is rest for the body. Like you even sleep better when you know um, the Lord. Fullness of joy, pleasures forever. Uh, several years ago, John Piper came to redemption. It was East Valley at the time. And he asked a question that I'm going to ask you to make this point. If, if, if this afternoon you could go to heaven and all your greatest wants were met there. For instance, let's say you're sick and your body's crippled or whatever, and as soon as you die and enter into heaven, I mean, your knees feel better, your back, you feel like a newborn baby, like you could run a thousand miles an hour. I mean, just awesome physically, you feel great. Let's say the people that you miss were there all waiting for you and great, great joy. Let's say that everyone, like you're a golfer and had endless holes of golf, like 18 holes all day, every day. You're a, you're a fisherman, and you can go fishing and catch stuff you don't have to lie about, you know, huge stuff. 
big, big fish all the time. All your greatest joys, all your greatest satisfactions just waiting for you in heaven. Now, let me ask you this question. If you could go there and get all that, but God wasn't there, would you want to go? See, right there, we're caught. Because that reveals our treasure. If God isn't the prize, if he isn't what waits all of us, if he isn't the point of all this, everything else is idolatry. Everything. Even the good things he promises us. You understand? If God says to you, you will find peace and you will find contentment, and you will find relationship with one another, and you will see the kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, and yet you don't care that God is the point. It's all in the way. It's all in the way. It's just another idol. And so David makes the point here that I've been trying to make that he is the treasure. Jesus said in a very small little verse about a small little parable talking about this treasure. And he talks about the kingdom of heaven this way. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a hidden treasure that a man found. He, he kind of stumbled upon it. And he buried the treasure. And in, this is what the text says, in his joy, he goes away and sells everything he has. Because his ultimate joy was the treasure. Listen, this is some time for us to kind of take stock of our own hearts. If all the good that God gives is all you need from him, you can't have it. It's just another idol. He's the point. He's the prize. He's the source of all joy. That's the point, right? So you go chase the things he gives, and they leave you longing and wanting and disappointed. No surprise, because they weren't built to do that. They weren't meant to give it to you. One writer said this, every longing in us is a longing for God. G.K. Chesterton says, the young man who rings the bell at the brothel is unconsciously looking for God. Every desire, I, I want to I know, I want to love, I want to be loved, I want to work, I want to please, I want to do these things. If it's pointed in any other direction, but to the ultimate good, it will leave us disappointed, Right? Look at what he says in verse 11. He tells us how we can have this joy. You make known to me, you should circle this next phrase, the path of life. Here it is. Here's the path of life. In your presence, there's fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Here's what David says. He describes it as presence and relationship. That right hand is a, uh, is a position of favor. It's a position of honor. It's a position of, of sonship. Did you know that? Uh, I'm one of those nerds who actually named my children after what it meant. Um, we spent some time um, looking at like Old Testament word, uh, names and said, okay, this one means. And so, you know, we've got Jehovah has been kind. That's Jediah's name. Um, Jehovah exists as Jesse, Eli, as God is exalted, but Benjamin, son of the right hand. All intentional. And it's exactly what, what David is saying here in Psalm 16. If I want to get to sonship, if I want to get to your presence, if I want to get to relationship, it comes by being a son and a daughter. It comes by that proximity. And if you've been around long enough, at least in this Roman series we concluded just last month, then you understand this big, burdensome truth that sin ruins everything. It ruins my heart. It ruins my perspective. It ruins our relationships. Primarily, it has ruined the relationship between God and man. There's a huge chasm 
And then Paul goes on to describe how this chasm is bridged and how our need is met in Christ. In Romans 5, he says that peace with God can be known through Jesus. He says that the separation that can be bridged and reconciled, those are words he uses, reconciled through Jesus and his sacrifice. And ultimately, he says in chapter 8 that we can now be adopted, grafted back in, sons and daughters, heirs of the kingdom, rightful heirs to everything God has given. What was once broken has now been made right through Christ. Sonship, relationship, and the conclusion is fullness of joy. Fullness of joy that lasts forever. That's what David says. So let me ask you this question as we wrap things up. If those are true, and I'm watching your heads kind of go, yeah, that's, that's, that's so true, I believe it, then why would we look anywhere else? If you already know the answer, what keeps you pursuing other things? Well, I think one of the reasons is that we only think in moments, like we're so short-sighted. We really think that this pleasure of sin is real and the joy of God is something I have to wait for tomorrow. Like, I'll get joy, but I gotta die first. So until then, I'm gonna make my own joy, even though I know already it's a temporal joy. And so we create it, we make it, we fabricate it, and it's not real and it disappoints, right? So sometimes we are so short-sighted, we don't see that joy is not just a future truth, it's a present truth in, truth in Christ, right? The other thing I think is... Um, Every joy we experience is a shadow of the source of joy. So it keeps us coming, keeps us wanting. So there isn't anything out there that you pursue that doesn't have a little bit of God-made truth in it, even a little bit. So God invented love. He is love. This is the context of relationships. So you can experience the, that in, in the one another's. And so even when someone goes off the reservation, as it were, to fall in love with someone they shouldn't fall in love with, there's a kernel of Intimacy and relationship in there. God invented those things. When there is uh, something beautiful, something winsome, well, that's, God does all of that. God is the author of beautiful things. And the fact that we would invest ourselves in that doesn't, make any, doesn't surprise me at all. When we go after things to achieve or accomplish or create, well, that's because God made you smart and creative, just, just kind of like him. We look like him in that way. Even the stuff that we know is sin, the stuff that we call bad even has a twinge of, I understand it. So, so the idea of like sexual impurities and, and pornography and things like that. Well, God made those things to work in the context of a marriage, right? But he made it work. It's beautiful and it's wonderful in that context. But we can take that one little truth and then run ragged with it. As the scriptures say, kind of like a fire burning out of control. That's what happens but there's a little bit of shadow of truth in everything, and that's why we pursue it. Maybe that thing God made, that was good. If I use it this way, maybe it will deliver. I'm not supposed to do that. The other thing I think is one of the reasons why we keep going the wrong direction is because sin distorts our perspective. Ongoing, unconfessed, rebellious sin keeps things blurry for us. Now, we are in Arizona, got a great illustration. A hot summer, August day, you look down the highway, and whatever that is that makes the world just kind of blurry, it makes lakes appear on asphalt, the mirages, right? That's what it's like to look at life through sin. It looks like it's real. It looks like it'll make you happy. It looks like it doesn't matter, but it does matter. And we continue to create like systems to cope, but it doesn't work. For, for instance, Jeremiah, the prophet from God to his people, talking about their rebellious heart, said this. Now tell me, this isn't a distorted view. 
looking through sin. My people have committed two sins. Here's the first one. They have forsaken me, a spring of living water. Bad enough, right? Guess what sin does? It blows their mind to such a degree they think they can go make a solution without God. And so this is what he says. And they have dug for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. It's bad enough to walk away from the Father, but to go over here and say, well, let's construct something that fills us and feeds us, only to have it leaking all over the place. They can't do it. And sin tells us the only reason we would choose those things is because at that moment we're sin blind. And sin says, maybe. And you're sitting here with a clear thought. You know that's foolish, right? Every time we try to construct something other than satisfaction in God alone, it will disappoint and it will leak like a sieve. It can't do it. One last thing. Our desires are too weak. That's why I told you, like, if we're talking about the weight of joy, sometimes we think about it wrong, like, maybe, maybe if I pursue joy, maybe that's a selfish thought. And, and there are many wiser men than me that have said that's kind, of a, that's kind of the wrong way to look at it. In fact, the right way to look at it is to say, give yourself fully to joy. The problem is that you don't have strong enough desires. It's that your desires aren't strong enough. So listen, listen to this. Look what he says. This is a piper... C.S. Lewis quote, this is C.S. Lewis first. If there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit that that notion has no part in the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition with infinite joys offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Have you heard that before, C.S. Lewis? It's powerful truth. If ultimate satisfaction is found in God alone, according to David, then anything else is like playing with mud, right? It doesn't keep up. And there'll be ultimate frustration with that. So what do you do? What do you do with some kind of reminder that you should chase after joy, the ultimate joy, who is God in Christ? What do you do? Then I think it's really important for us to identify the false ones because we all got them. Call them what they are. Tell yourself and tell your father that you find joy and rest in the wrong places. Your bank account, your friends, your health. Tell yourself, tell yourself and tell your God that you're finding satisfaction someplace else. That's the first thing. Then the other thing, I love this word. It's the best word God gave the church apart from grace, and that is repent. I would just say repent of bad taste. If he is the ultimate satisfaction, then why are you at McDonald's? You know what I'm saying? And then lastly, and this is, this is from Jeremiah and from David cultivate a taste for God. You can't just turn it on. You can't walk out every day and go, you know, he says some good points. I'm going to try to care more about him than me. You have to work on this. You have to cultivate a taste for the Father. And Jeremiah says in 29, again, to the people who are stubborn and wandering away, he says, you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with what? All. Not some, not most, not once in a while. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. He's not playing hide and seek. He just wants everything, okay? And then one thing that David says in Psalm 34, I love this. 
Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. You're not going to be disappointed in him. Try him. That's what David said. Try him. Find out for yourself how great he is. And you'll find your refuge there. You will not look elsewhere. Make sense? See the weight of joy? We're in a season now that's just going to kind of flood us with offerings, things that are counter to what God alone provides. And you're going to feel the weight of joy in the next couple weeks. I, I promise you are. You're going to have a world that tells you that this or that will make you happy or probably more than likely you'll get done with it and say, it left me wanting. So I, I just want you not to, not to listen to those voices specifically, but let them turn you to another perspective. Just let that experience remind you that you were made to find joy in him and him alone. What else is the point? Right? And, and then I would tell you this. If your disappointment, and I promise you, you'll experience it. If your disappointment leads to your ultimate satisfaction, who is God, then this is not just a good endeavor. This is a great endeavor. To figure out that everything else loses is a good experience, although it comes through disappointment. Do you understand? Tell me you understand. Good. Let's pray for his help. God, I thank you so much for... Um, Christ, our Savior, who came to this earth to provide salvation for sinners and a joy unspeakable and full of glory. I pray, God, that your church might find its satisfaction in you and you alone. It would label and call all other gods what they are, idols. And we would trust in you and your satisfaction. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.